Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. A huge complex of stereo equipment rose up along one wall like the fortress in Vallis, which was Nicholas Brady's sound mixer. I could see where the visual idea had originated. I'll put on a tape we made, Eric said, going over to the audio fortress and clicking switches on. Minnie's music, but my words. I'm singing, but we're not going to release it. It's just an experiment. As we seated ourselves, music and enormous DBs filled the living room, rebounding off all the walls. Jesus, I thought, listening to the lyrics. Well, we came to the right place, no doubt about that. We wanted this, and we got it. Kevin could amuse himself by deconstructing the song lyrics, which did not need to be deconstructed. Well, he could turn his attention to Minnie's electronic noises then. Linda, bending down and putting her lips to my ear, shouted over the music, Those resonances open up the higher chakras. I nodded. When the song ended, we all said how terrific it was, David included. Over at the stereo, Kevin gazed down in rapture. David walked up to me, his hands stuck deep in his pockets, a complex expression on his face. They're... they're crazy, I said. But in the car you seemed... crazy, I said. Good crazy, David said. He stood close beside me as if for protection. Or... or the other thing. I don't know, I said truthfully. Hello and good morning. I am William Ashgleth. I'm just kidding. I'm William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by mail at 42minutes.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Uh, but today, though we may seem to drift on stranger tides, we continue our month-long look at Vallis, and we do so this morning with the help of good old horse-lover fat's Catholic friend, David. Yet first, we need to remind our listeners to check out the videos that have begun to surface from this past summer's Sync Summit. It was quite an event, as you've heard, but now we have the pleasure of witnessing portions of it. The best place for all your Sync Summit memories is at our website, thesyncbook.com slash Oli2014. Additionally, I'm also very pleased to announce that we have negotiated with an artist and will be producing our first 42 Minutes t-shirt that will be available by Christmas. It's going to be awesome, and we'll keep you in the loop about details and how to get one. But today, for episode number 150 on the 16th day of September, we have the pleasure of meeting Mr. Tim Powers. Mr. Powers is the author of numerous critically acclaimed novels, including Three Days to Never Declare, Last Call, The Anubis Gate, His pirate adventure on Strange Tides was adapted into the fourth installment of Disney's Pirate of the Caribbean franchise, which is just insane. He is a past winner of the World Famous Award and the Philip K. Dick Award, I think numerous times. More information about his work can be found on his website, theworkoftempowers.com. We are honored. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Oh, happy to be here. Wonderful. One of the things that's said about Philip K. Dick over and over is how familiar the reader 
becomes with the characters and his stories. You, it, one of the best examples of this, I think, is in Valis. I mean, there's times where you almost feel like a fly on the wall, almost a little guilty for eavesdropping at the flawed, <laughs> in quotation mark, conversations that are going on. Um, but in your case, I mean, you are actually, or you can directly relate to what's going on in Dallas. And I wonder, how accurate is it, a portrayal? It really is very accurate. All the uh, conversations between David and Kevin and Horse Lover Fat uh, and Sherry Solvig uh, really did occur. It's sort of a distillation of um, kind of ongoing uh, debates we had with Kevin, who was KW Jeter in real life. Um, he re- Jeter really did uh, bring up his dead cat as an, <laughs> argument, <laughs> as an argument against either the existence of God or at least against the benevolence of God. And I suppose I did cite C.S. Lewis a lot. So <laughs> there's that one bit of dialogue in Vallis where Horse Lover Fat says to the David character, would you please not tell us what C.S. Lewis would say about this? Would you do us that one favor? <laughs> I guess I know. <laughs> I'm thinking, I didn't quote him that much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, at least the first half of that book, until they go up to uh, the Bay Area to meet the Savior in person, is virtually autobiography. I know when I read it, uh, I had been keeping a journal, like all college students. And uh, when I read the book, I went back to my journal to read my version of those days. And um, I half suspected he must have been keeping a journal because if he says it was raining on this particular day, I looked in my journal and thought, yeah, it was. Um, So it's, yeah, it's really uh, much more autobiography than anything else. But now one of the things that I notice is He's a little disparaging to both you or your character, David and and Kevin. It, <laughs> is this playful on his part? Yeah, uh, I remember at one point he says that uh, when they when they actually meet the Savior who has appeared as a little girl, he says something like, "David went into a trance. David zoned out. The church had taught him how to do this, right. how to." blank out when evidence arose that threatened his faith. I remember I read that, and I went to Phil and said, what the hell is this? Uh, I'm sure the church teaches, I'm sure I ever would do this blanking out thing. What are you talking about? And he just put a hand over his mouth and went, hee, 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 hee. (laughs) Well, he also said that you had a teeny bopper girlfriend. I probably did. But then you, you, both you and K.W. Jeter are, are much younger than Phil. Yeah, I was, uh, God, what are we talking about? Uh, roughly 19, late 70s, really. Uh, so, yeah, I would have been in my uh, 20s. Sure. I just, I just wonder, a lot of people, you know, when they first hear about Philip K. Dick, they suspect he's trying to L. Ron Hubbard a religion into being or something. <laughs> No, that's more something happening in their heads than anything he intended. Uh, For one thing, 
I think L. Ron Hubbard was probably consistent in whatever his creed was. But Phil Dick uh, on Wednesday would entirely contradict whatever he had said on Monday. Uh, and he just vacillated so widely and constantly that uh, you you could never distill any sort of, uh, you know, doctrines from what he said. He'd be Catholic one day, Orthodox Jewish the next, <laughs> I guess, some sort of weird Gnostic, pre-Socratic thing the following day. Wow. That's the feeling you get from it. But I, I there's a part, there's a real shocking part in Vallis where Philip K. Dick looks and Horse Liver Fat is gone. Oh, yeah. And, and when you guys go back, there's like a conversation going on. We were like, yeah, Phil, we were, we were worried about you. We, you know, they talk about it like it's been going on that way the whole time. Was Philip K. Dick two different people? Or was he multiple people? Not any more than any of us are. I mean, he would, um, I suppose it's conceivable that he was to some extent bipolar. Uh, he would some days be very jolly and outgoing and talkative and, and on occasion, much less often, he would, uh, be morose and uncommunicative and just sort of sit and stare at the wall but uh no you never got the impression that you were dealing with uh like which philip k dick am i talking to today um uh, the device of horse lover fat um as he says in the beginning of the book i'm i'm referring to myself in the third person under this name in order to give myself some objectivity uh i think that was true and then when he found that he had uh, a Philip K. Dick character too, he began to make use of the plot possibilities of that. Uh, as I recall, when Horse Lover Fat disappears, it's sort of a return to sanity for the Philip K. Dick character. Um, yeah, like a sense of wholeness. Yeah. Nothing um, Nothing like that that I have any recollection well, of. Just, uh, we talked to Tess, and Tess, there's a lot of comments about like MK Ultra, uh, Ultra, and some kind of like thing being done to Philip K. Dick in this like Lee Harvey Oswald-ish way. Uh, he would speculate about such things. He would speculate. Uh, oh, I remember he said that he was missing an entire year in his memory. Uh, sometime in the 60s, uh, and speculate that he had been taken away somewhere and brainwashed in a sort of uh, Manchurian candidate way, um, you know, ready to be triggered by some equivalent of the Queen of Hearts card. But, and of course, we all found this completely convincing. Well, Jeter was skeptical, but um, <laughs> I was always completely taken in. Um, and, and so was Blaylock and my wife. But the next day, if you said something like, well, Phil, uh, I've been thinking about that uh, Manchurian candidate thing, uh, he was very likely to just say, oh, that, that's a bunch of nonsense powers. What do you listen to that for? Uh, well, there's no doubt there's a real genuine sincerity to his exploration in Vallis. 
do you what do you, how do you what do you how do you come to terms with it? Is it a work of literary fiction and he's really created something wonderful or is it more of a processing of a religious experience? At the end of where I'm I'm just curious about your opinion of it in totality. Yeah, it was it was genuinely coming trying to come to terms with a religious experience. Um <clears throat> his um conclusions would vary all over the lot, but uh, the initial data, the actual experience he was trying to assimilate did not change. Um, he was always very clear about what had happened to him, and the only doubtful area was what the hell was it? Um, you know, was it acid flashbacks? Was it <laughs> microwave transmissions from the Soviet Union for God knows what's purpose. Um, <laughs> was it genuinely uh, God talking to him? Um, but yeah, Vallis is definitely an attempt to, and so is uh, Vallis system. In fact, everything he wrote after Vallis um, right. was all an attempt to try to figure out what it was. Yeah, he's trying to figure out what happened to him and what the truth behind it was. And uh, I swear, if you listened to him, and to some extent even from reading the books, um, you have to conclude that something momentous did happen to him. If only I've read that temporal lobe epilepsy is a plausible explanation. But um, if I had to put money on it... Uh, if I if somebody said, okay, Powers, uh, your best guess for the record, what happened? I would say God talked to him. Well, what are the implications of what that would mean then? That he was the implications? Of, I'm sorry, implications of what? The implications that it was God who talked to him that makes him a prophet. What does that mean? I don't know if it makes him a prophet so much as just a. Uh, um, Victim, uh, <laughs> uh, because if if you look at all the events, uh, all you can say is uh, God jerked him around a lot. Um, I remember at one point he was saying, "You know what? I don't think there's any." He told me about this the following day. Uh, one night he was thinking, I, I don't think there's any anything to any of this. I, uh, even you know the existence of God. Uh, who says? What's the evidence? Come on. <laughs> and he said he was immediately flattened by uh, the perception of God, the 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 uh, some sort of divine vision, and just as. St. John of the Cross experienced, it was horrible, it was crushing, it was obliterating, and he was just in misery for hours, enduring the beatific vision, and he said at one point, he said to God, I'll never do dope again, and God said, that's not the issue. Um, God says, after this, you won't ever presume to doubt me again. Uh, so, yeah, really, I don't think the whole thing made him any sort of prophet, if, in fact, it was God. 
Well, there's a there's a there's a there's a, an event that basically confirms his experience inside the book when you guys go to a movie. Was there oh, yeah. a, a particular movie? It was um, the man who fell to earth with David Bowie. Oh my Bowie. God, that's great information. Well, I think he he says that in in the exegesis, but so many people say that the movie he describes in the book is so remarkably different. That they can't believe that it's the same movie. Well, um, that's a consequence of fiction. Uh, I remember when he and Jeter did go to see Man Who Fell to Earth, and they both came back all excited about it. Um, I think Phil used that event and the excitement as a plot device. But once you're using a real event... uh, as as an element in a piece of fiction, you're going to have to torque it around a bit. I, I think that's besides the point. We deal a lot with on this radio show about like unconscious patterns in in people's works. So uh-huh. it's like, I mean, in a way, okay. So if Philip K. Dick did become a prophet, then after his death, all of these movies come out, and all of these movies <laughs> kind of become the the work, you know, the 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 the, in a way, they Acts become the, the movie. That, right. Uh, well, that's... Uh, if so, I would expect to find um, some subtle, consistent element in all those movies. Well, it goes beyond the actual movies that were made specifically for the titles, but like with like the, the Matrix, okay? So The Matrix is obviously a Philip K. Dick-inspired story, correct? And it's got... <laughs> It's got, you know, it's got Keanu Reeves, there's this door of light like in Vallis, blah, 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 blah. It's, 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 it's a Philip K. Dick themed with the, even the, the cat going back and forth. Like you see the cat going meow, meow, and he's like deja vu. And then there's that, there's that scene of Philip K. Dick saying, you know, the deja vu is them rebooting the computer system that we're in. I mean, Matrix is it, it, Yes, definitely. Well... Keanu Reeves also plays the Scanner Darkly, which again is like a very. Do you see what Will's doing here? It's interesting because that thought process is described in Vallis, where he's deconstructing this movie, and it's like hermeneutics, where he's describing the symbol set and implying it to his own personal life as a synchronicity. He even calls the music synchronicity music. That's right. I'm wondering if he was really like that in person. Like, if that's how his brain worked, or if, if this was just him analyzing that, like, quote-unquote crazy portion of himself, the less... Well, that is how his brain worked. Um, in fact, uh, wasn't there an album called Synchronicity Music from Brian Eno? No, I think it it was... It, it might have been called Discreet Music, the one that... Discreet, that was it. Discreet Music, yes, of course. I remember he made a tape of that, that a loop... So it would simply play over and over again with no interruption, wow. uh, which he claimed to derive benefit from listening to. And I remember Jeter said, typical addict behavior. You give him something good, and immediately he abuses it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he did have the reflex to look all the time for subtle, uh, portentous connections. Uh, I remember in... Uh, I believe it was in Vallis, uh, where he says the message King Felix yes. went out and the U.S. Army took note. Um, 
And uh, I remember he said, well, Powers, here's what that is. If you look at this certain page of um, Slow My Tears, the policeman said, it juxtaposes the, the way the paragraphs are laid out. It happens to juxtapose the word king directly above the word Felix. Right. And he says this was a you know deliberate subliminal clue. And he said that it, in real life, the U.S. Army did buy, with no explanation, 400 copies of the book. And you, th- and you think, well, okay, um, <laughs> maybe... Maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe there is something to all this. Um, I think everybody has a sort of uh, weakness for that kind of theory of you know secret big things going on behind the scenes. Uh, but he certainly he certainly uh, found that sort of thing attractive. Hmm. Well, it's messed me up in the head, man. <laughs> oh well, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. <laughs> well, here's the thing that messes me up in the head is so that so when I discovered Vallis, I just thought it was it was straight fiction and it was fascinating and fun. And then this is the kind of book that you can kind of realize that it's describing something in his life, and then you go into it, and then there's more substance to the characters than you you realize because they're based on real people. But it amazes me and astonishes me that both you and K.W. Jeter are such profound writers yourselves. Profound. I like that. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't think either Jeter or I have, uh, oh, what would be a good word? Maybe profound is a good word. Um, the sort of uh, uh, upwelling from the union depths that uh, Phil Dick had in his books. I mean, you read... Uh, Martian Time Slip, Maze of Death, especially Maze of Death, and you get this sort of uh, shiver in the bottom sections of your brain uh, where uh, the sort of vague memories of nightmares you had as a little kid live. And that sort of subconscious response does tend to make you think, there's more to this than just a science fiction book. This is bordering on brushing against something big and important. Um, I don't, with all the best will in the world, I don't think Jeter and I managed to touch that. Hmm. Would you want to touch that? Are you looking for that? Yeah, actually, I'd love to. Uh, I'd try to. <laughs> um, I, In my own books, I look for... Uh, Connections, implications, um, uh, you know, evidence of enduring old myths that show up in slightly disguised form in history or contemporary events. Uh, to the extent that maybe I learned this from Phil, um, often late at night, I'll be reading some fresh bit of research, and it will happen to align strongly with whatever the theory is I've made up for my plot and I'll think uh, oh my god powers you're not making this up you've stumbled <laughs> onto the real story but then in the morning I'm okay again <laughs> well see there's unconscious patterns in your stories aren't there I mean like with the body of water for instance yeah yeah it's always fascinating to uh, 
look back and notice such things. It's a lot of fun, actually. You think, oh, look at that. Um, my old subconscious is cranking away there. Um, I've always thought that when I turn 70, I'll have a lit major or maybe a psych major read my stuff and tell me what the themes and tropes and whatnot have been. Um, I may be very dismayed to be told. But do you think that speaks to your own like microcosm or do you, do you are you tapping into the larger so like that's something that I'm curious about so those transcendent writers like Phil was is he telling a universal story that moves beyond time and place that endures well yeah um i think science fiction and fantasy make that a lot more possible for a writer than uh strictured mainstream does in that um it kicks away all the you know boundaries and uh uh obstructions and leaves you free to uh make a story about anything that strikes you as uh affecting uh portentous uh and if you give that free reign if you're not simply writing something with other restrictions added in, like, I don't know, Star Wars novelizations or something, um, I think there's the opportunity for your subconscious to toss up some old, consistent, Jungian, you know, artifacts. Uh, and, and I do think this shows up, maybe it shows up even more in magic realism, I'm not sure, but uh, science fiction and fantasy are forms that leave that door very open. Um, and certainly I try in my own work to get a sort of numinous tone, if possible, if I'm capable of it. Um, that kind of shivery recognition on a sub-rational level. Um, Chesterton, which I hope you guys are familiar with Chesterton, um, says that if we read in a fairy tale pluck a flower from this garden and a princess will die in a faraway land. He says, we don't know why something in our subconscious says, in effect, well, yes, of course, before our rational mind can slam down and say, wait a second. Well, in, in Stranger Tides, you have, in the old world, magic's dead. And so the villain kind of has to study the bones. But in the new world, magic is still very much alive. Right. Um... I said it was because of cold iron uh, as opposed to hot iron, such as is in blood. Um, there is there is something uh, that on a very uh, deep, sub-rational level, we find attractive, I think, about the idea that there might still actually be uh, spirits in the trees, uh, fairies in the garden, um, Certainly, everybody, everybody, even the most rational and skeptical people are susceptible to being scared of the dark or scared of clowns. Um, and I think that's a sort of old silhouette recognition function that somehow Darwin has not erased. I mean, we've certainly advanced a lot physically, you know, aren't covered with fur anymore. But uh, that old response to the supernatural 
circuitry is still completely undiminished in our heads. Right, and it has to kind of take on a new guise. Yeah, it's got to adapt itself, so we will look at it. I mean, if you simply say, here's a witch stirring a cauldron with a, you know, cone-shaped hat, we think, right, right, Halloween. Uh, it's got <laughs> to morph into a more contemporary, modern-looking uh, guise to get to get uh, effectively in. Yeah. UFOs and <laughs> yeah, UFOs. I've I've read some great stuff about uh, jet trails. You know the yeah contrails being God knows what runes or poison gas or God knows what. We all are eager to seize on some sort of not necessarily sinister but at least transcendent uh, explanation for mundane stuff. And I think that reflex is not trivial. Uh, since we do still have it so strongly, evolution has not eliminated it. I think since it's still here, it must have some sort of value. So which of Phil's works do you think is your favorite, and then which one would you say is his masterpiece? Uh, good question. Um, my favorites would be uh, Maze of Death, uh, Martian Time Slip, uh, Ubik, uh, uh, Do Android and Stream of Electric Sheep, uh, and and Valis. Um, if I had to pick a masterpiece, I would almost want to say no. It's a whole. It's it's a it's it's all one big thing. Uh, you you're looking for a best chapter, but um, but if I had to. Uh, I might pick Martian Time Slip um, because he wrote that right after Men in the High Castle, which, of course, was published in hardcover by Putnam as, I think, virtually a mainstream book. And every expectation was that he had moved up to the point where he could really write what he wanted and he you know, had, had achieved some... Uh, mainstream prominence and attention, but and so he wrote Martian Time Slip on those assumptions. Um, but then they all proved to be wrong, and Martian Time Slip was only published as a paperback original. Um, but I think that was the book he felt freest in, um, except maybe eventually for Vallis. He certainly felt very free there. Uh, so I would say one of those two, Vallis or Martian Time Slip. Yeah, there's, we were told a story that he there was an offer for him to write the novelization of Blade Runner. That's right, there and, was. And he said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I, w I want to write you know, either Vallis or Timothy Archer or something. Else. Yeah, uh, and they had offered him, I don't remember the amount of money, but it was something substantial which is crazy to write a novelization of a movie based on a novel you already wrote. But, um, MK ultra man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he did turn down that substantial amount of money in order to, yeah, write, uh, I believe it would have been Vallis. What something like another layer deep in that is KW Jeter wrote 
Blade Runner 2, which unites <laughs> That's right, the movie and the book. And the book. And and he I'm about halfway through it and he's doing a great job. Cause yeah. They you know, <laughs> Phil created this wonderful world that uh was it Rid- Ridley Scott was able to realize actualize, yeah. Yeah, uh, luckily Phil was very pleased with what he saw of the movie Blade Runner, though he didn't live to see the the full thing. Um, yeah, I remember thinking Jeter was just undertaking an impossible task because the movie and the book did differ substantially. Really, <laughs> very substantially, yeah. But all of the movies, all of the movies that of, I mean, let's see, I guess... I don't know if Total Recall would be the closest one or not. I think the closest would be Scanner Darkly. Yeah, well, that was intentional, though. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, mostly I think it's significant that the movies have been based on short stories rather than novels because Mm. a short story lends itself to acting as a springboard for whatever movie plot you want. Have you taken the time to see Radio Free Albemuth? Yes, yes. In fact, that one, like uh, Scanner Darkly, does adhere very faithfully to the original book. Um, I thought it was very well done, actually. Uh, and, they, and they, of course, have the the rights to Valas. So the oh, same. Oh, do they? I didn't know yes. that. I heard if Radio Free made enough money, then they would be able to fund Valas. But ah, and there's talk. There's been talk for years of a biopic on Phil Dick's life. Uh, at one point or another, it's looked, you know, like it might happen. I don't know what its status is right now, but that would be a fascinating thing. Uh, for one thing, I would hope they would include me somewhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have me advise the the Tim Powers character. But then to go into that Valis world of layers of meaning, who? Who do you think what actor would portray Phil, and what would be a good actor to portray you? Uh, um, for Phil, I I remember there was some discussion of um, uh, what was the movie about Merlot wine sideways? Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. Uh, who who was that guy? Uh, uh, oh yeah, he played. He also played Charlie Picar, I think. And he was in um, Saving Mr. Banks. He was the nice driver. Yeah, I can't, I can't believe think I, of his name. I'm not thinking of it either. I, I can't can see him, it. though, well, and he's, yeah. Yeah, I have the virtue of being old. You don't. Um, <laughs> but there was talk of him being Phil Dick. And I remember looking at him and thinking, you know, yeah, I, I grow a beard, you know. I, I think it would be plausible. Uh, as to powers, I have no idea. Uh, I'm uh, Russell Crowe, you know. <laughs> and then who would who would play Cheater? Ah, uh, Alan Rickman. Uh, though he's probably see, you, they'd all have to be in their twenties. All these people, all these right, actors. Right. Um, right. But. Uh, and and then Tess and uh, Good Lord Linda Levy. Um, they, 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 I suppose the best way to do it would be for them to go away and derive it strictly from the books and not consult or even look at the people they were actually based on. Uh, 
But you would definitely have to get the characters right. I mean, the funny thing is, is I read an interview with you, and and you were talking about how you you said Phil called you and that Jeter was being huffy puffy, and that just uh, yeah. perfect characterization to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. I remember one time Phil called me and said that his researches had led him to believe he had the power to forgive sins. <laughs> and I said, wow, uh, who have you absolved? And he said, well, that was yesterday. Today I've concluded I was mistaken. And yesterday you weren't home, and Jeter didn't want his sins forgiven. He got all huffy. And he said, and so I just forgave the cat's sins. <laughs> but I think the interesting part of that is that by the time he got around to calling me, he had already decided, well, I guess I don't have that power after all. <laughs> You missed it, man. You missed out. <laughs> yeah, you should have been there. I could have. I could have given you a plenary indulgence. <laughs> oh man, it's it's a pri- it's a privilege to talk to such a lifelong writer like yourself. Is there any insight you could give young writers on you know editing their own work or perhaps like cutting the fat? What have you learned? Oh, as far as editing, I think any piece of writing is improved. Uh, if it's a short story, for example, throw away the first two pages and let the next complete sentence be the first sentence of the story. Huh. And if it's if it's a novel, throw away the first chapter and let the book begin with what you had thought was the second chapter. Um, <clears throat> but in general, I would say ignore trends. Um, ignore what? What are the current trends? Steampunk. Um, there's other stuff probably. Vampire um, novels. Or vampires, something. right? Of course, all the all the uh, metrosexual vampires. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say ignore all that. Dystopian uh, fiction is what with little girls. Yeah, no, yeah, sure. Don't don't write the Hunger Games again. No. Um, again and again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just don't write the pseudo Tolkien again. Um, write something of your own. You you won't. Uh, you won't get anywhere by being the 505th imitation of some long-ago original. Uh, and then um, don't quit, uh, even when it would be sensible and mature and responsible <laughs> from an adult point of view to quit. I, I, it calls for a degree of unrealistic uh, hubris. You know the old sentence uh, that insanity consists of doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result? Yeah. That's what writers need. You need to keep on doing the same thing over and over again, even though it keeps failing. You need to conf- uh, actually uh, adopt the behavior that uh, that saying describes as insanity. Speaking of that, when I contacted you, you were finishing up something, I think. Yes. Yes, I did finish it. And is this something altogether brand new, and when can we expect it, and and can you tell us about it? Well, I sent it off um, about a month ago, and uh, unfortunately, editors take August off. And so I haven't heard back from the editor whether she likes it, she hates it. Um, <laughs> which is always kind of a nervous little period to sit through. 
Um, but it, uh, yeah, it's a standalone thing, not any kind of sequel to anything. It uh, takes place in Los Angeles now um, and has to do with uh, a very secret uh, addiction that was uh, covertly popular in the 1920s among actors and movie people in general. Um, it uh, It's sort of a thing you do that involves um, not time travel, but overlapping yourself with different periods of of time. Uh, and it deals with uh, Rudolf Valentino and Ala Nazimova and the, to this day, unsolved murder of uh, William Desmond Taylor, who was a prominent movie director then and was killed in 1922. Also has to do with the death of uh, Thomas Ince, another movie director who died very mysteriously on William Randolph Hearst's yacht in 1924. Mm. And I hope it's good, and I hope the editor thinks it's good. And, and so it's it's a look at historical classical Hollywood? Yeah, uh, from a vantage point of now with old complications of 20s Hollywood suddenly becoming active and relevant and urgent again. That sound, sounds good when I describe it. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> sad to say that I just discovered you as a writer, but you're just such a fabulous storyteller. I think uh, for oh, years I've always complained about how I enjoy Stephen King's storytelling, but he has kind of a juvenile voice. Now, who, who is this? Stephen King. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. But then your storytelling is so gripping, and you're such a, a great writer. I think the thing, like you said, don't quit, that after... After you do this long enough and you develop this body of work that it's just a matter of time before everyone realizes, oh my gosh, you know, here, here's this guy with a whole catalog of great works. So I'm excited to start reading much, much more of you. Oh, well, good, good policy, good policy. Um, <laughs> yeah, ultimately what you want is them out there. You want them on Barnes & Noble shelves and in used bookstores. Um because you can always think of times when you yourself have been in a used bookstore and picked up some obscure book you never heard of and took it home and thought, wow, this is actually real good. Whatever it came of this guy. Um, so you hope that you sort of scatter these things out and that uh, people will, you know, people you'll never meet, people in states you'll never visit will happen to pick them up and, and, and like them. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Wonderful. You've been listening to Tim Powers on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. You can find information about Mr. Powers' work at the work of Tim Powers. Actually, it's works, plural. The works of Tim works Powers. Works of for more, And it's all one word, so it kind of screws with your eyes. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. 
If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. And please consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And may I presume to suggest that we proceed the hell out of here with due haste. Uh, very good. I've been romance, dying and dance, crazy nights, wild times, my life has lost its mystery, love is blind. And I cannot find me I'm blowing away Shadows Change my love and me I'm Keep